Good morning, everyone. It's great to see you here this morning. A special welcome to our visitors who are here. I hope you are blessed by this morning's service and the message as well. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to the Philippians letter, uh, chapter 3, and we'll read that whole chapter this morning. Philippians chapter 3. the whole chapter this morning, we won't be going through this whole chapter, actually we'll only be looking at verse 1 this morning, um, Lord's put on my heart to, uh, to share this particular chapter as a series over the coming weeks and the, the purpose of this series is to encourage us to press on, to actually strive toward the mark, to, to achieve that goal, to, um, to reach out for the prize that's before us. So. I'm, I'm hoping that we are blessed by this, uh, by this series that's coming up uh, in the coming weeks. Read with me this morning. We'll read the whole chapter this morning and then we'll, uh, we'll focus on verse 1. <clears throat> read with me. Philippians chapter 3, verse 1. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you, to me indeed, is not grievous, but for you it is safe. Beware of dogs. Beware of evil workers. Beware of the concision, for we are the circumcision which worship God in the spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. Though I might ha also have confidence in the flesh, if any other man thinketh that he hath, whereof, uh, have, uh, sorry, hath, uh, whereof he might trust in the flesh, I more. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, and Hebrew of the Hebrews, as touching the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, Touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. But what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ, and be found in him, not having mine own righteousness which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death, if by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead, not as though I had already attained, either were already perfect, but I follow after, if that I may apprehend that for which also I am apprehended of Christ Jesus." Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before. I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Let us therefore, as many as be perfect, be thus minded. And if in anything ye be otherwise minded, God shall reveal even this unto you. Nevertheless, where do we have it already attained? Let us walk by the same rule. Let us mind the same thing. Brethren, be followers together of me. And mark them which walk so as ye have us for an example. For many walk, of whom I have told you often, 
and now tell you, even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is their shame, who mind earthly things. For our conversation is in heaven. From whence also we look for the Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall change our vile body, that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body, according to the working whereby he is able even to subdue all things unto himself. Let's pray. Father, once again we come before your throne thanking you and glorifying you for who you are. Father, we just thank you that you are a God who does not change. You are consistent and you are faithful to your word and to your promises. And this morning we are here because you have kept your promise. The promise that you made to send your only begotten son to this world that he might save us from our sin. And Father, we are thankful that he completed his mission, that he was obedient to death and that his sacrifice was acceptable to you in that he was risen from the grave. And Father, in that hope we stand today. We pray that as we seek to live your ways and to understand who you are and what you would have us do, Lord, we pray for faithfulness on our part. We pray that we would be true to what we hear and what we read and what your spirit would be teaching us. And this morning I pray that you would use me for that purpose. Lord, that I might share the truth with my brothers and sisters here, that it would be you that they would see, they would hear. And Father, I pray that every heart would be open to your truth this morning, that the spirit would once again be working in the midst of us, helping us to understand the words that we hear. We thank you once again for your precious truths. We thank you for your word and we thank you that we can trust each and every syllable in it. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Hermann Lange. A German Christian uh, was to be executed by the Nazis during World War II. In his cell on the night before he was killed... Uh, Lange wrote a note to his parents. He said, two feelings occupied his mind. I am first in a joyous mood and second filled with great anticipation. How's that? In great joyous mood and filled with anticipation. Then he made this beautiful affirmation. In Christ I have put my faith and precisely today have faith in him more firmly than ever. Finally, he urged his parents to read the New Testament for comfort. Look where you will. Everywhere you will find jubilation over the grace that makes us children of God. What can befall a child of God? Of what should I be afraid? On the contrary, rejoice. That's a, that's a nice and bold statement to be making for someone who is in a jail cell ready to be executed. But we have a similar situation in Paul's case where he writes this beautiful letter um, affirming the joy that he has even in the midst of those um, tribulations that he was going through, not knowing what would become of him in that situation. So this series um, is meant to be an encouragement to us. It's meant to help us to not focus on the things that, that tend to wear us down, the things that that drag us uh, backwards, the things that are behind us and 
as Paul says, and Paul encourages the Philippians to press forward to the mark, forgetting those things which are behind, because there is a lot more in front than there is behind. We aren't defined as Christians by what happened in the past, but by who we are today. And too many Christians live in the past. God calls us to press forward, never to look back. If you are to look back, the only reason you look back is to remember and to rejoice in what was done for you. But if we are stuck in the past by things that bring us grief, then we aren't looking forward, are we? So this series is, is meant to encourage us, and I believe firmly that Paul wrote this letter to encourage the Philippians. You see, Paul was writing this letter from a jail cell, and the Philippians knew it. The Philippians knew that the, the man who had, who had planted their church, who, who they had grown to love, was stuck in a jail cell and they did not know what would become of him. And there is no doubt that they had much concern for Paul. And they probably hence had some concerns for themselves because of what they were seeing was happening to people in the church, the persecutions they were beginning to encounter. And in writing this letter, Paul would have firmly understood their fears. Paul would have understood that they were worried about him. So he writes to, to um, alleviate those fears. And he also knew that they probably were beginning to have concerns and anxieties within themselves about what was to become of them as a church. And if you go back a, a few chapters to chapter 1 with me, as we look at the introduction to this letter, we begin to see Paul's heart with respect to the Philippian church. And he says to them in Philippians chapter 1, verse 12, But I would ye should understand, brethren, that the things which happened unto me have fallen out rather unto the furtherance of the gospel, so that my bonds in Christ are manifest in all the palace and in all, in all other places. And many of the brethren in the Lord, waxing confident by my bonds, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Now Paul wanted them to understand, first of all, that there was a purpose to his suffering. Even though he was in chains, he says, even though he was bound and, and wasn't free to roam as he was accustomed, he says, there is a purpose to my suffering. There is a purpose to what's happening at the moment. And he says that purpose is that God will be glorified because the doors of the gospel were being opened to people around him. Even though he was in a prison, the thing he was looking for was the positive things that God was working around him in, you see. He didn't look at himself. He didn't look at his lack he did not see his own circumstances and say, woe is me, what's going on? Look at what I'm going through. Paul rather looked out and said, look at what God's doing. And that gave him strength to continue through. So he, he says to the Philippians, there's a purpose to what I'm going through. There is a purpose. It's not just, it's not just a circumstance that happened haphazardly. God has a, a plan in all of this. And that plan was that the gospel would be preached and it would reach the right people. And he says even more so that even in the midst of him being in a prison, there were 
brothers and sisters in the Lord who were even becoming more bolder because they were encouraged by him being in prison. So they were preaching the word of God more boldly as a result. So even in the midst of his tribulation, of his trial, of the things that were oppressing him, Paul firmly believed in Romans 8.28. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God. All things work together for good. Even when things look bad from this angle, all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are called according to his purpose, you see. And it's his purpose that we live for, not our purpose. And sometimes we don't understand the full purpose or the full details of God's purpose and God's plan. But the beauty is that, and the wonderful thing, is that we've been called to become part of that purpose. When Paul looked at his condition, at the state of the uncertainty that he was living in, even himself, it didn't grieve him. It didn't cause him to, to fear or to tremble or to say, oh, look, you know, God's forsaken me here. He was in a cell. But he didn't say, God's left me, God's abandoned me, God doesn't care about me. Rather, he looks with unwavering confidence in the midst of his circumstances, unwavering confidence that the Lord that he served was working in the circumstances around him. And he was happy for the Lord to use him for whatever purpose God would have him to be used. So what was Paul's goal in writing this letter? It was to encourage the Philippians. It was to encourage them. We often call this letter the letter of joy or rejoicing because it's mentioned so many times throughout. Paul knew that they needed encouragement because questions were probably coming up in their minds about what circumstances were happening around them and how they should respond to those circumstances. And Paul knew what they were going through and he wanted them to be at peace. He wanted them to have the peace and more importantly, he wanted them to have the joy that comes from knowing Christ even when the world turns against you. Look at Philippians 1.27 with me. This is Paul's desire for the Philippians. Only let your conversation, that's your life, your, your lifestyle, the things that you do, be as it becometh the gospel of Christ. Live a life consistent with the gospel of Jesus Christ, that whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs, that ye stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, and in nothing terrified by your adversaries, which is to them an evident token of perdition, but to you of salvation and that of God. For unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake, having the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. That's Paul's desire for them. That in the midst of their circumstances, he wants them to rejoice and celebrate in the life that they have received from Jesus Christ. The life that they now, that they now possess. And in the midst of the present sufferings, and the pain and all this striving that this world uh, goes through, he wanted them to understand that the life they have should make all of that suffering pale into insignificance. Because there was so much more ahead of them. 
There was so much more that they had than they didn't have. So let me ask you this morning, as we begin this series, what circumstances are you currently in? What are your circumstances? What burdens do you bear? What persecution do you go through? What is it that you struggle with in your life? What are the things that that crowd your mind at night when you go to bed? Things that won't let you sleep. What are the things that cause you to, to cry? Things that cause you to weep. What are the things that are burdening you this morning? And I want you to, to think about those things as we go through this series. Because if you write those things down, if you list the burdens that you have, the persecutions, the trials, the tribulations, whatever, you, whatever it is that you're struggling with at the moment, I want you to understand that if you look at these in the context of what you have, and you focus on those from the, from the lens that God gives us of his word and of eternity. You can experience the joy, even in the midst of those things. And I'm not telling you this morning that you will never experience pain or suffering or, or your feelings will be hurt. No, it doesn't mean that. What I'm telling you this morning is that even though you may go through those things, even though you may experience those things, that God gives you the strength to Go through those things with joy because when your foundation is strong, the winds may come, the waves may beat against your home, but the house will not fall when your foundation is sure. And that foundation is what we're going to be looking at today. There is a reason you can have joy. If I said to you, oh, have joy, what good would that be without a context? What good would that be if I didn't tell you why you should be joyful? And today I want you to understand why you should be joyful. Because as you look at your circumstances, as you reflect on the things that that burden your life today, when you look at those in comparison to the things we have to rejoice in, those things have become very, very small. So Paul wants to remind you today, as he says to the Philippians, you shouldn't be terrified by your, by your adversaries. You shouldn't be terrified. Don't be afraid of them. And those adversaries may be people, they may be circumstances, they may be situations, it may be illness, it may be something else. Whatever, whoever, your adversaries, your adversary, I always don't, don't know how to say that word properly, but I hope I got it across. Whoever it is, whatever it is, Paul says, don't be terrified of it. No need to be. Because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. There is no challenge that can come to you that can defeat you today. There is much to rejoice in. There is much to celebrate in this life that God's given us. And regardless of your circumstances, regardless of of what comes against you, You need to remember that the conditions that you find yourself in today can be overcome and can be worked through. And even though we go through sufferings, there are reasons for those sufferings. You see, sometimes we go through sufferings because of the choices that we make. Sometimes we make bad decisions. 
And oftentimes we look at ourselves and the situation that we're in and we say, God, why are you letting me go through this? And we didn't realise that a few, a few days or months or years ago, we made a conscious decision to do something. And we forgot our own decision. We forgot our own choice. And then we turned to God. I actually read something interesting the other day. And they, done a, they did a survey. And they found that the majority of atheists blame God for their circumstances. <laughs> Find that interesting? That, that when, atheists go through, when atheists go through some sort of turmoil in their life, they look for someone to blame. There has to be someone to blame for what I'm going through. I don't deserve this, right? I don't deserve what I'm going through. So there's only one they can blame, and that's God. But the sad thing of that is not that, not that that's actually hypocritical in, in that sense, but the same survey said that Christians do the same thing. So the hypocrisy of the, of the, the atheists actually contrasts with the sadness of, of Christians actually blaming God as well. And Christians shouldn't blame God for their circumstances because, you know something, 90% of the time the circumstances we find ourselves in are only because we're reaping what we sowed. And we shouldn't be blaming God for anything. In fact, we should be like the Apostle Paul. He finds himself in the dungeon and says, praise God for what I see happening around me. Can we actually do that in our lives? Or do we find ourselves with every challenge that we come up against, we say, woe is me, why has God abandoned me? God never abandons us. Even to raise that as a question is a, is a concern. Because Jesus says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So why do we continually question him on that? We shouldn't. If he says it, he'll do it. Has he ever lied? Never. How do your circumstances compare to those of Paul today? How did your list? What's the opposite of a bucket list? Things that you don't want to do. <laughs> Things that you don't want to go through. How does your list compare to Paul's? Who was stoned, shipwrecked a number of times, beaten, rejected by his own people, persecuted, and eventually he died for what he believed in. How do your circumstances compare to the Apostle Paul? If Paul had such confidence in the unwavering love and power of his Lord, what about you this morning? Do you have the same confidence of Paul? Do you have the same confidence that even though you're going through whatever trial it is, that God is using those trials and those challenges to draw you closer to himself? Do you believe that? Do you believe that really that all things work together for good? That's what I want to challenge you with, you with today. What is troubling your soul? What is consuming your thoughts and your strength? And I want you to understand that Romans tells us, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or the sword? As it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. Do you believe those words? Are you more than a conqueror today? Do you see yourself as a conqueror? 
Have you conquered those challenges that have come your way because you have full trust in his love for you? Do you have that trust today? That whatever comes your way, you know he's always by your side. Paul finishes, he's finishing his letter. You see we're starting in chapter 3, but we've missed out on chapters 1 and 2. And Paul's almost starting to wrap up the actual letter. There are four chapters in this letter, and at chapter 3, Paul begins to wrap it up, and he says in verse 1, which we'll be looking at now, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you, to me indeed, is not grievous, but for you it is safe. Paul as he has already declared in chapters 1 and 2 how he rejoices that the gospel is being preached in chapters 1.18 and how he rejoices in his ministry in chapter 2 verse 17 and he calls them to rejoice in chapter 2 verse 18 and even though he's already reminded them a number of times and given them reasons to rejoice he says it again, he repeats it again and he says for me it's not grievous to write this thing again for you to remind you again but for you, it's safe. It's good for me to write you these things. It isn't a burden for him. What Paul was saying about it was safe for them, he was saying that it's good for me to reinforce to you one more time the importance of this thing. To remind you just one more time about the Word of God. See, this is the very reason that we encourage you to read the Word of God every day, you see. So why we encourage you to come to church every week. Because God knows, the Lord knows that these eyes can deceive. The things I see in the world want to draw me away from the truth of God. You see, the truth of God is a spiritual truth that underlies everything that we see. But the world wants to drag me into its paths. And indeed the flesh that I still carry around with me wants to also drag me away. And stay away long enough and stop being reminded long enough about the, about the truths of God and you will begin to believe the truths of the world or the lies of the world. Do you see? Stay long enough being fed the same rubbish day after day and you'll begin to get used to it. You'll begin to believe it you'll begin to assimilate to it. And before long, you'll be in it. That's why Paul says, it's, it's not grievous for me to remind you of this thing, but it's safe for you if I remind you again and again and again. Because the more I remind you, the safer it is for you. There is safety in being reminded and encouraged regularly concerning the things of God. Why? Because the Lord knows many distractions in this world. There are too many distractions in this world. There are too many things that can grab our attention and keep us trapped. And it's a bit the same as the analogy of a tree. A tree doesn't grow overnight. Now God can make a tree grow overnight. But a tree does not generally grow overnight. A tree needs to grow over a number of years and needs to be watered on a regular basis. It needs to receive sunlight on a regular basis. And we, like trees, and God often um, compares us to that sort of scenario. If we are starved of the word of God, we will eventually wither. 
If we don't receive the sunlight of God's grace every day, we will wither. God wants us to continually be bathed in his love, to continually be bathed in his truth, and to draw upon the truths that we find in the word of God. That reminding is important for us. Turn to Matthew chapter 5 with me for a moment. I'd like to look at some other passages that speak about rejoicing and I'd like to see what the other gospel writers thought about this particular subject. Matthew chapter 5, verse 11. The Lord says here, Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. You see, Paul was only reinforcing reminding them what, the, what Jesus had already spoken about to his disciples. Jesus had reminded his disciples about this, that even though they would be persecuted in this life, even though that men would revile them, they would say all manner of evil things against them, charging them with things that weren't even true, lying about them. Jesus says, rejoice and be exceeding glad. Why? Because... Great is your reward in heaven. There's a reason to rejoice. There's a reason to be, to be glad. So whenever they suffered persecution, mistreatment and oppression because of who they were, because they were followers of Christ, Jesus tells them to focus on what they have in heaven, not what they have here, what they have been given in heaven. And these words are relevant to us today as well, are they not? even though we are not currently suffering as, the, as people in the early church may have, we still represent a threat to this world system. We still go against the flow. And I know how difficult it can be to live a Christian life in this world because everything seems to be going against you. Ever swum against a tide before? <clears throat> not an easy thing. And sometimes living that Christian life, in fact, all the time, living a Christian life is like swimming against a tide. The tide is continually coming against us. And if we try to do it in our own strength, we'll be swept away. But there is grace that is available to us each and every day. God gives us the strength every day to continue that swim, to continue going against the flow. Even though we may not be persecuted, as people in the Middle East are currently being persecuted for following Christ, as people in maybe China are being persecuted, as people in many other countries are suffering at the moment. We don't experience the same suffering, but we do have our own challenges in this country. We go against the grain. And if you want to live godly in this world, we will inevitably seem out of place and at times backward to these people, judgmental, narrow-minded, in fact, stupid, that we believe in the word that was written thousands of years ago. We trust, we trust everything in it. We take it literally. 
To these people, we're numbskulls. We're silly, stupid, naive. It's inevitable that they are going to persecute us when we stand our ground. be seen out of place and unfortunately that often happens with our own families and friends, does it not? The first place you will be made to feel out abnormal or feel out of place is generally with your own families if they're not saved. That's the first place and that's often the most difficult place to live your Christian life because they know who we are. They know our weaknesses. They know, they know our characteristics. So we need to constantly be living the truth. We need to constantly be on guard. We need to constantly be measuring what comes out of our, of our mouths and the actions we take. Because by our testimony, we can either affect them in a positive or a negative way. So there is a challenge for us to live godly in this world. But we must remember something. Even though we may be out of place in this world, maybe out of place with our families, maybe out of place with, the, with our work colleagues, maybe we feel out of place completely. Fantastic. If you do, that's good. That's good because Abraham was out of place as well. He was a pilgrim, it says in this world. He realised that there was a home that he was going to that wasn't of this world. Let me ask you a question. You know when you go home, You've been away from home for a long time or you go off and you work for the day. When you get home to your place, how do you feel? Do you feel relaxed in your own home? I do. When I go home, I can just go and just be myself. I don't have to put on any pretense. I don't have to put on the, uh, the, the show of bravado in front of other people. I can just be myself in front of my family and my home is a place where I can just relax. Do you know what heaven's going to be like? Heaven is going to be that place when we get to that we're going to go, oh, I can be myself. And there's no, no one going to be around to, to criticise or say you shouldn't be doing this or you shouldn't be doing that or you should be doing it this way. I can just be myself. And that's what I'm looking forward to. And it's going to be so much better than our own homes today. So much better. I'm looking forward to that. Do you remember what the Lord promises his faithful servants when they stand before him on judgment day? He says, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful over a few things. I will make thee ruler over many things. And I love the way he finishes it. And he says, Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. There is joy in heaven. There will be much joy. Not a joy that's against the grain, that has to overcome obstacles, but a joy that's just there constantly. Jesus tells us that we can have that joy now. We get a taste of heaven now. 
But there will become a day when we reach our home, our final destination, where that joy becomes complete. Where everything that we hope for, everything that, that the Lord promised us comes to fruition. It comes to reality. And all the stuff we, we've been through in our lives, we'll look back and we'll say, wow, look how insignificant that all was with respect to this. Look at what I have now. Turn to Luke with me. Luke chapter 10. Look at another passage where Jesus speaks about rejoicing. And look at Luke 10, chapter, sorry, chapter 10, verse 19 to 20. And in this particular passage, Jesus has given his um, disciples the ability to cast out demons and to heal sicknesses. And the, the, the disciples understandably get pretty excited about this, you see. So imagine Jesus gives you the ability to cast out devils, heal sicknesses, you know, defeat the enemy wherever he is, have complete dominance over him. You see, in the, the, the disciples, as they, were, as they were experiencing the power of God that was working through them, they were getting pretty excited about this whole thing. They were getting very, very, um, uh, well, not the, I'm not sure if the word is rejoicing, but you would understand, if you are in that position, how you'd feel after you cast out a few of these nasty demons out of people. But Jesus tells them, even though you get to do all these amazing things because of the power that I've, I've invested in you, I've given you this authority over the devil himself, he says in verse 19, Behold, I give unto you power to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. Notwithstanding, in this rejoice not. That the spirits are subject unto you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. Don't rejoice because you have this power over demons and, and there is nothing that can hurt you and that, and that you, you're exhibiting the amazing power of God in your life. He says, don't rejoice over that. I, how could I not? <laughs> that might be a little bit difficult for me, Lord, when I'm casting out demons by pointing at them. Jesus says, don't rejoice in that. Don't focus on, even on that authority that you have. He said, rather rejoice in the fact that your names are written in heaven. So once again, Jesus doesn't, doesn't focus the attention of, of us on the world, even what's happening around us, but rather rejoicing in what's up there, in what's coming. Jesus tells his disciples not to focus on the power that they could display, he tells them to, to rejoice in the fact that their name is written in heaven. Have you ever thought about that? That your name, if you put your faith in Christ, that your name is written in heaven. There is a book with each one of our names written in there. I find it extraordinary. What does Peter tell us? Turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. And we'll read from verse 3 to 6. 1 Peter chapter 1, 
verse 3 to 6. Now let's see what Peter has to say about rejoicing here. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time, wherein you greatly rejoice. Though now for a season, if need be, you're in heaviness through manifold temptations. Paul, uh, sorry, Peter reminds us that we have been born again to, because of a lively hope or in a lively hope. And that hope is what I mentioned in our Easter service. And that is we have this hope of this resurrection because Jesus conquered death on that Sunday. Jesus rose from the grave and because he rose from the grave, we have that same hope within us that we will too be one day resurrected, given a new body like his, a body that won't experience pain, suffering, hair loss. And everything else that goes with these decaying um, things that we have today. Peter reminds us that we have a lively hope, a living hope, not a dead one, a living hope. Because Jesus not only rose from the grave, he didn't die again, he is living today. And then Peter reminds us that we have an inheritance coming up in verse 4. An inheritance, something that we are to receive, which is pure, incorruptible, and will never disappear or fade away. He says, think of that. It's the same thing that Jesus reminded his own disciples to remember that great will be their reward in heaven and that reward never fades away. No one can steal it. It, it never corrupts. It never rusts. It never, it never disappears. It's there. In addition to this, Peter reminds us that our salvation is not maintained or kept by our efforts. It's not by me struggling to try to keep this thing, trying to work hard, being as faithful as I possibly can and trying to achieve all these things and, and obey all these rules and regulations. And if I do, I might be able to make it to heaven. No, he says, you are kept by the power of God. We're kept by his power, maintained, preserved from here all the way to the end. That's the confidence that we have as Christians. Peter reminds us that our salvation is not by our efforts, but by the power of God. And in these things, Peter says, rejoice in them. Rejoice. And we should rejoice. And all these things are related to what Jesus spoke of as well. You see, we had to rejoice in our, res in our resurrection, the coming resurrection, the resurrection of the Lord. We had to rejoice in our salvation, that is something that we got we received as a gift rather than earning it. We had to rejoice that our names are written in heaven and no one's going to ever take them away from that book. We had to rejoice that our, there is a great reward for us in heaven when we get there. Something we can't even conceive now in terms of its beauty and its preciousness. And he says that we should rejoice in the fact that God has preserved us and is preserving us. And it's his job to maintain us all the way to the end. There's a lot of things to rejoice in here. How excited does this list make you this morning? Honestly. 
How excited does it make you? When we speak of these things, does your heart stir? Do you feel joy knowing that these things are true for you? Are they true for you? Sure, you might believe them in a general sense, that God does these things for believers, but is it true for you this morning? Because if it's not true for you, then how can you experience joy? If these aren't real for you, then you can't experience joy. You can't have a firm foundation. Do you want to know something? I shared this thing with the leadership group we had the other, the other day. You will only sacrifice your life. You'll only get excited about something or joyful about something in proportion to how important you think it is or how precious you think it is or how valuable you think it is. You see, you're not going to get excited about something that's not that important. But you will get excited about something that's precious. If you place a higher value on something, you will rejoice when you think on that thing, when you dwell on it. You will sacrifice yourself for it. You might think, well, what, are you, what, sort of, what are you talking about? Okay. Um, when, you, when people enrol in a university, they'll enrol themselves in a particular course and they'll study for X amount of years. They put themselves through pain and suffering. Yeah, they do. They do. And all the hours that go into studying and all the stresses that go into finishing off work that has to be completed and handed in, all the pushing and striving and all the hours that are dedicated to these things come and are sacrificed because you believe that the degree or the certificate or the diploma that you receive in the end will all be worth it. When you hold that thing in your hand, you will go through years of suffering because you honestly believe in your heart that it's all worth it because you're setting yourself up for a career. True? So you'll go through the suffering. You'll go through the pain. You'll put in the effort. That's what I'm talking about with the gospel. That's what I'm talking about. Christians often are very short-sighted. They won't put in the effort. They won't put in the suffering. And when they do suffer, they blame God for it. But do you understand what's waiting for us in the end? Do you understand what God has prepared for us? Because it isn't a degree or a diploma that's useful for only a few years. God has prepared an eternity for us, a place that will never fade away, Joy that we can't even compare. How excited do the things of God get you today? How excited do you get seeing these things? Is it something you're, you're hoping to achieve one day? Because God wants us to be perfect. God calls us to live godly lives that, that grow and change each and every day of our lives. But oftentimes we, we sit back and we say, oh, I'll... I'll I don't have to do that. I've got, more, I've got more important things to do. If you place a high value on something, 
then you'll rejoice over that thing when you receive it, but you will strive to it. You will work towards it. What does the world rejoice in? Weddings. Do people rejoice at weddings? Yeah, I think they do. Now, being a marriage celebrant, I've, I've, I've had the, the pleasure, I've had the privilege of, of seeing um, a number of weddings, being in, in, involved in them. And there's great rejoicing when two people make a commitment to, to each other. Don't, isn't there? Huh? Weddings are wonderful things. It's good to see two people committing the rest of their lives to each other. How much effort goes into preparing a wedding? Not much. Uh, there's a lot. There's a lot that goes to it. You see, people will work towards that thing. They will sacrifice their money, their time, their, their sanity um, for a wedding day when all the family are going to be there, when everyone's going to be rejoicing, and everyone does rejoice, and, and, and it's great to see that sort of thing. But then the commitment starts, doesn't it? Once you've made that commitment, then it's, a, it's an ongoing process. You learn to, to live with each other. You learn, to, you learn to compensate for the other person's uh, weaknesses. All of a sudden, all these weaknesses come out after you get married and you didn't know about them before. But weddings are a reason to celebrate. And it's right for us to celebrate them as well, is it not? I mean, when you have, when you have your children, will you not celebrate when they, when they get married? Of course you will. We all want wonderful things for our, our children. So weddings are a great thing to celebrate. So are babies. We've had a few babies over here and, and we celebrate when children are born. Is there much effort to, to, to get to the baby stage for the birth? Of course there is. Of course there's a lot of effort that, that, that gets... And does it stop when the baby's born? No, it's just the beginning. But there is reason to celebrate. There is reason to rejoice when a baby's born. And you'll put the effort in to make sure that they're, that they're nurtured, that they, they grow right, that you teach them the right way. We celebrate getting new jobs, we celebrate buying a new home, we celebrate birthdays, we celebrate anniversaries, graduations. All of these things are reasons to rejoice. Yeah. The world rejoices in these things, don't they? What do we rejoice in? How does... How does the salvation that we have, the fact that our names are written in heaven, the fact that God is preserving me even now, and the fact that Jesus is the right hand of God interceding for me to make sure that I, I, I get, I, whatever this, this journey I've started, I'm actually able to complete. Does that give you joy? Oh, that's, that's the most joyous thing. We know that heaven rejoices itself when one sinner comes to repentance. Heaven rejoices, the angels rejoice. What about us? What causes us to rejoice? Because if you are the type of person who will rejoice when there are weddings, when there are babies, when there are home buyings, when there, when there are new jobs, when you, rejoice with, when you rejoice in those things, but don't rejoice in the things of God, then tell me where your heart is. Tell me where your heart is. Is it in the world or is it in heaven? Because God wants our thoughts and our hearts in heaven. The thoughts we have of heaven and of eternity 
And the fact that we've been rescued by the Lord should give us a great deal of hope and joy. It's a type of joy that will carry you through the most difficult burdens that you bear, the most difficult circumstances that you have. And it doesn't mean, as I've said, that we will not experience pain or suffering. No. It means that we have a strong foundation to get through all these things and to thank God that in the midst of these circumstances, he even uses those bad things to actually bring us closer to himself. This is what Paul wanted for the Philippians. They feared for him and possibly for themselves. And Paul was setting a wonderful example for them and saying, look at me. Look at me. I'm in the middle of a prison. I don't know what will become of me. But in this situation, I'm thanking God because I see the gospel being proclaimed. God has opened a door. And I'm going to walk through that door, regardless of what it is. Paul was saying, look at me. This is the type of joy that overcomes tribulation. And Paul repeats himself again in Philippians chapter 4, verse 4. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say, rejoice. And this is where I want to conclude our sermon today. Paul does not say, rejoice in your salvation. Rejoice in the reward in heaven. Or rejoice that your name is written in heaven. He doesn't say that rejoice in the resurrection or rejoice in the preserving power of God in our lives. Rather, he says in all these passages, rejoice in the Lord. And who is the Lord? Jesus Christ. Paul tells us over and over, rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in him. You know why? Because whatever it is that we have, whatever it is that God's given into our possession, whether it's our salvation, whether it's that hope, whether it's grace, whether it's your name written in heaven, everything we have, everything we hope for is in him. There is nothing that's good that's outside of him. And that's why we rejoice in him. If it's our resurrection, it's he who first conquered death. If it's, our, it's our, if it's our salvation, it's he who secured our salvation by dying for me on a cross. If it's my name written in heaven, it's because it's his book, the Lamb's book of life that my name's written in. He owns it. If it's that reward in heaven, then he won it all for me. And the Bible even says that one day if I receive any crowns, if there's anything that I did that was good in this earth, I'm going to give that crown right back to him. Because it's only because of him that I've received it. And if it's the preserving power of God, it's only because he's standing at the right hand of the Father now interceding for me. Because of his grace that that's all sufficient for my life to live a godly life in this world. In the end, all of our rejoicing, if you rejoice about anything in the Bible, in the gospel, in heaven, in anything, it's only meaningful if it's focused on him. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. God bless you. Thank you.